I don't believe that's called a collaborative exchange of scientific ideas, is it? It's called a defense. Even the word is a me against you kind of thing. And can you imagine if you said that in an interview? All of a sudden, you've separated yourself from everybody else. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk with a former PI who now helps academics transition into industry. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 79. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Good morning, Dan. Uh, bonjour, Josh. <laughs> this is new. It's morning. Yeah, uh, this is the time that our schedule's worked out to record, so we're going to try and knock this thing out and uh, get on with our day, I guess. It's weird. I, I assume this means we're not drinking. Well, we considered having a beer... Because that's what we do. But low, low morning ethanol. That sounds like that sounds like a really uh, the road to a bad place. I mean, it is not even nine a.m. yet. Yeah, day <laughs> drinking is bad. How about morning drinking? So we are featuring on the show this week for the first time coffee. Uh, okay, so that probably doesn't have any ethanol in it whatsoever. But uh, I'm excited to try this. So tell me, you did something fancy and hipster, please. Well, I did because listeners of the show may not know this, but. If I was stranded on an island and had to choose one beverage between uh, beer, wine, liquor, or coffee, I would choose coffee. I think that's hands down, right? Yeah, I can't live without my coffee. Plus, you could grow it on your island. Well, Theoretically, it was nice and tropical. That's a good point. Uh, so, what I did, Dan, this is, uh, I used my Chemex to do a pour over for you today. Uh, that's the glass kind of tubular hourglass thing? Yeah, so the scientist in me really loves the Chemex. I don't know if this is true, but... I think the story is there was a chemist who really loved his coffee and he got tired of walking wherever he had to walk to get his coffee. So he realized he could repurpose some old chemistry glassware this uh, is into a, a coffee brewing device. Giant no-no. <laughs> I hope that uh, environmental health and safety doesn't wander by. Well, the, the Chemex glass device that I purchased was uniquely for coffee brewing. I have not done any chemistry. Okay, well, let me give this a try. Well, I, I see that it has been lightened somehow. Have you added... Uh yeah, I went ahead and I added some uh, added some whole milk uh, to it before you came. Whole milk? What am I, an animal? <laughs> There's no half and half? To me, to me, the whole milk is really the way to go. Half and half, that's like, I think that's like an American thing. I'm not a half and half. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Uh, I, I'm a half and half person. And, sure. and I didn't have any. That also helps. <laughs> now, um, the Chemex that I've seen, the reason I'm not a fan of the design is because it seems like it's hard to clean. Is it hard to clean? You know, I just give it a rinse. As long as you give it a rinse immediately after using... You're good to go. You don't need a bottle brush and a, a no. drying rack above your sink. You could, but I think a little of the scum on the bottom really adds to the adds seasoning. To the uh, so I will say, <laughs> what is this? I'm <laughs> excuse me. So we're drinking, Dan. This is a gray squirrel sweet sea house blend from Carborough, North Carolina. Um, my special recipe, and Dan, you've been doing this a long time, uh, but I actually use a kitchen scale to weigh out the the. I have my burr grinder. Yeah, I don't have one of those yet. To uh, get an even grind. And so uh, what we did here is we had 40 grams of our coffee ground and add a 1 to 16 ratio of coffee to water. And uh, that's what we got. Okay. Well, it's it's excellent. And, uh, you know, you don't get any of the, the kind of harsh bitter or harsh acid taste that you would maybe get from an older coffee or something from Folgers. You so. know, 
I was making this for my in-laws one time, and, and and my mother-in-law said, "Oh, that's so fancy." I was like, "You know, it's really not. It's pouring hot water over coffee grounds, right? Over beans. Yeah, there, yeah. there are like two things in yeah. it. Couldn't yeah. get simpler. It's unlike your Keurig, right? I mean, to me, that's fancy, right? Yeah. That has uh, hydrocarbons <laughs> leaching out of the plastic <laughs> for that right. extra flavor. Dan, before we get into our topic, I wanted to share some good news. The first good news is we hit 100,000 downloads last week. That is incredible. Yeah, that is certainly a milestone for us, and I'm blown away by that. Um, and you got 98,000 of those, yeah? Well, my mom was at least 1,000 yeah. probably, but... No, it is... It, you know, we, we we track these metrics because it helps us to see are we... Are we talking to ourselves, basically, or are people downloading, listening, sharing, and and you are, and that's just amazing to us. So thank you so much, everybody. Yeah, and we had listeners from all fifty states and over a hundred countries. We got Wyoming. We finally, we finally got South Dakota and Wyoming. Yes, so that's good news. Hello, Wyoming. Uh, the other good news, Dan, is we had three new Patreon supporters. Oh, that's even better. This must, these must correlate. So big thanks to Peter, Brent, and Rick for their generous support. And we are raising a glass to you. Well, actually, a uh, mug, two mugs, <laughs> two coffee mugs. Um, and so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to be organizing a special chat with our Patreon supporters this fall. So stay tuned for details on that. Uh, we will communicate uh, with you to to set that up. But if you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, or if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash hellophd or click the become a patron button on our website. Dan, you ready for some science in the news? I'm always ready. All right, Dan, this is this is a quick one, but one I wanted to share because it's somewhat of an update on a past episode. Dan, we've talked about the GRE a couple times previously. Um, many times, yeah. This is a crusade of yours. Yeah, as, as our listeners probably know, and as you certainly know, Dan, um, my colleagues and I did some research on our own graduate students at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, we worked with some colleagues at Vanderbilt who did their own study, and we found across the board the GRE was not predictive of how well grad students actually do in grad school, which is probably not at all a surprise to any of our listeners. No, and and I remember we, we talked about, you know, what would the world look like if we stopped requiring it because it no longer has any predictive power? Um, but in my opinion, this is, was going to take 50 years until people forgot about what the GRE was. Well, Dan, we might find out the answer to your question because just this past week, the Michigan PIBS program, or Program in Biomedical Sciences, announced that they will be dropping the GRE requirement starting next year. And is this based on, on some of that research? Or so, did they do some of their own kind of internal analysis? It absolutely is. And so what, what they did is really cool, I think. They, you know, they really put some time and effort into studying this issue. So they... They developed two teams of faculty, each who developed a white paper for and against uh, the use of the GRE, and they had a public town hall discussion about the <laughs> merits and drawbacks of the GRE that was attended by students, postdocs, and faculty, and they came to the overwhelming conclusion that there was really no need to continue the GRE. And one thing I'm excited about, Dan, I've pulled up this, uh, this white paper against using the GRE as we scroll through. Uh, there are two images. You might notice this uh, second image is a poster I presented of the paper that we we published. So that that's incredible, and uh, what a cool format! 
for for figuring out whether we want to continue as a university to use this system. I am really curious to know what the four team presented. What were their uh, arguments for wanting to maintain the GRE? That'd be fascinating to read. Yeah, well, if anybody's interested in reading um, the for or against, Michigan has published has posted all this online, so we can post a link uh, to both of those those white papers. But Scott Barola, who's the director of the PIBS program, he said that they came to the conclusion that the exam's ability to predict student performance seems weak at best while significantly disadvantaging women, minorities, and students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, and also continuing to ask students to invest money and effort in a test whose usefulness our faculty cannot agree on would be a questionable policy. So they're dropping it. And then very soon after that, through a tweet, which I guess is now a valid way to announce, make any major announcement. Uh, like international policy, for uh, instance. Uh, UC Berkeley uh, also announced their molecular cell biology program will also be dropping the GRE. This seems like the first one or two dominoes starting to fall. Maybe you'll get a cascade. Yeah, I think the momentum's going in this direction. So if you know of any of what your graduate programs are doing, if they're making any changes regarding the GRE, Certainly, we would love to know. Uh, but Dan, I'll say this. I studied microbiology for about over 10 years and published some papers. But I will say 100%, I've never been more proud and excited about research that I've done um, than this, this GRE work. Well, it's actually getting application. I mean, when, when you're publishing on the 55th amino acid in your protein, you know that you're years away from any kind of clinical trial or application. But when you're talking about changing graduate training... Uh, there's no reason it couldn't change fast. Uh, I'm surprised it's changing so fast, but there's no reason that they can't do it. I am too, but we will certainly keep you all posted as the new developments unfold. All right, Dan, you ready for our topic? I'm ready. All right, Dan, you set up a really cool interview for us this week that I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of. I know I did. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who we are talking to this week? This week, Josh, we got the chance to talk with Randy Roboto. Now, Randy was a, a PhD, just, just like us, and he was a PI, actually, at the NIH, where he did uh, some cancer research. Through that process, he started using some software to do some of his genetic analysis and he got in contact with the makers of that software and started giving them feedback. Over time, they developed this relationship where he actually went to work for this software company. And they got picked up by some other company. He had some other stints in uh, industry labs until he finally landed at a place now where he's helping train academic scientists and teaching them how to find, apply for, and land these industry jobs. He's got so much to say about that process that I think our listeners who are interested in maybe moving out of academia and into industry, or even staying within academia, I think you're going to get a lot out of this interview. Yeah, I think what's cool about Randy is he's really experienced the gamut of different types of research environments. Yeah, so he's seen both sides. He's seen he's seen what it looks like to work in an academic lab, and he's seen what it looks like to be part of an industry lab. And the contrasts are important, but the similarities are important too. And he'll unpack that in this interview. Mm -hmm. This interview went on for about an hour and a half, Josh. We had so much to talk to Randy about. Uh, we had so much in common that we wanted to share. So we had to cut it way down for this episode. But what I'd like to do is to uh, release the full interview for our Patreon subscribers. 
And what Randy talks about in the parts that, that we weren't able to include in the show are his actual process in how he went from his PhD uh, in Connecticut to, you know, working at companies like Solera and then on to his training now. So if you want to hear about that process, plus some more uh, outtakes and things from the interview, uh, you'll find that for Patreon subscribers on our website. My name is Randy Roboto. I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of PhD Programs. Uh, our focus on PhD is helping academic scientists best prepare themselves for professional careers. Our emphasis is on transitioning from academia um, to industry jobs, but the things that we talk about are just as relevant for becoming successful within an academic environment. You've been on both sides of that divide. You've been in the academic lab, you've been in the industry. And so I'm interested in this comparison. The big difference that I've observed between most academic life and industry is that you work in cross-matrix teams in every company I've ever worked for or with, right? Either as an employee or as a consultant. Um, you're always in a team-based environment. And the team invariably is made up not just of only, not only of fellow scientists with similar backgrounds and interests and talents, but you've got marketing people, you may have finance people, you may have engineers. They're all different people because that, that represent the different interests that the company has, right? Everything a company does is driven towards a strategic goal that they've set, right? And then they have to deliver on that strategic goal on time and on budget, which brings in the whole project management piece. But in order to make that happen, there are business considerations as well as technical considerations, which gets to like one of the hallmarks of what we teach of the sort of the side PhD, um, I guess idea is that you have a brand, which is as a scientist, you have a technical identity, right? Your scientific identity, you're an immunologist, you're a molecular biologist, whatever, but you need to have a business identity and a social identity because it's those two things together that allow you to effectively function in a team environment. And you don't have to be king of the hill. You don't have to be the expert all the time. In fact, it's not a good idea to be the expert. I think time. I think a lot of our grad students and postdocs would actually welcome that change from I think sometimes How do you mean? That's interesting. I think some of the I don't know, I think sometimes some of the frustrations and trepidation that that trainees ultimately have with academia is is not wanting to play that king of the hill game, you know, they love science, they like working in teams, but I, but as you mentioned, academia is not always set up that way. Each lab is almost its own little competitive island. Um, with other academic labs. And so I think uh, this notion of going into an environment where you're working with a lot of different people with different um, expertise um, towards a common goal would actually be something that a lot of people would find very appealing. Like, just for example, when I was at Solera, so, you know, you have your base salary, right? Whatever that is. But then there's all the, you know, the, 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 uh, the bonuses that happen are based on, they are based on your performance reviews. So, you know, you the goals that you set with your with your boss, your manager, right? They get reviewed at the end of the year. Did you meet these milestones? Did you do this training that you agreed you were going to do? Did you bring in this amount of business or depending on what your job is, right? You know, did you perform personally? But then there's also a modifier for your group, 
right? So how did your group perform? And what were the goals that that group had by the division director, for example? And then there's the whole division. And then there's the company, right? So your compensation is based on not just your personal success, but it's based on the success of the company at its various different organizational levels as you go up the ladder. And I guess you can argue in some ways that in academic labs, um, success is based on the publications that are a contribution of all the different people in the lab, maybe. But I don't know, from my own experience, and certainly the experience of the thousands of, of, of graduate students and postdocs that we train, you know, it's really very, you know, it's your publications that matter, right? It's your invitations to speak at meetings. It's your personal achievements that are what gets you the nod. So, so one thing I wanted to ask, you've mentioned it uh, a couple of times, but I want to just, now you and Dan have probably talked about it. Uh, tell us a little bit about PsyPhD. So what is PsyPhD? PsyPhD is a program that uh, my business partner, Larry Petkovic, and I developed that focuses on assisting academic scientists transition uh, into professional careers. So just because of the way things are right now, what that means usually is how to transition out of academia into the private sector. But we really strongly believe that the, that the things that we teach, the things that we talk about are just as relevant in running a better academic lab as they are um, working at Pfizer, right? Because if you think about it, you know, and I can speak from personal experience running a lab, you're basically the CEO of a small company, of a small startup, right? You are. I mean, you hire, you fire, you have a strategic plan, you have to worry about budget, you have to worry about personnel, um, and you have to get a return on investment, right? It's just what is the currency? It's not necessarily money, publications and whatnot. What we did notice, so now Todd and I were working with scientists from all these biotech and pharmaceutical companies for these various accounts that we had. And that's where we started noticing these big differences in behavior, right? But what was amazing was you had successful scientists, molecular biologists, chemists, cell biologists, immunologists, all in one room from different companies, and it wasn't a fight. It wasn't the typical, I know more than you, you know, always trying to top some, you guys know what that's like, right? I mean, there's so many times I can recall in my academic career where you're, you know, you're in a lab meeting and you say something insightful and then somebody else has to say something more insightful. And sometimes a PI has to say something even more insightful because how can you be showed up by some lowly graduate student or postdoc? That's how we ended up with the podcast is just me and Josh trying to prove that we, <laughs> we know more than the other. <laughs> exactly. So you're, you're my good best example of a bad example. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. So I'm trying to prove I know less than anybody on the topic. <laughs> hey, by the way, I, I, I do think that humility is one of the most underappreciated traits for success, Right. It's it's not often rewarded uh, in in the lab. I don't think. Well, not in the lab, but in life, it is. Yeah, it is. fair. Um, anyway, so we started connecting dots between sort of that. Let's just call it passive or active arrogance that you see that is nurtured in academia. This, I am the expert, right? I have to be the expert. If I'm at a seminar and somebody's giving a talk, now I I, I will only speak from personal experience, but I suspect that this is generally fairly broadly felt. When I'm at a seminar, I'd be listening. I'd be interested in the science, 
But when I'm thinking about raising my hand for a question, the question is as much to demonstrate to everybody else that I saw a flaw in what they said or so that everybody else can know what I know that they don't realize yet, right? Yeah, you want to nail them on, on figure five, subplot two. And it's not necessarily to further the discourse of science, is it? It's just as much so that other people know that you're so smart. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I think a lot of our grad student postdoc listeners would be nodding their head um, and, and really probably are, are thinking about their own experience where, man, am I really paying attention because I think the science is cool and I want to learn or, oh, I just got to come up with that one question and once I get it in my head, I can... <laughs> or worse to be on the other side of it, when you're doing the presentation and you just know that everybody in the audience is looking for every nitpick flaw that they can find so they can they can call you out on it so you can be embarrassed well, on the stage. that. You know, and then you get someone who asks a question, and in their you know long-winded two-minute question, they're also citing their own papers, and yeah, page numbers because they have a photographic memory that they want everybody to know about, right? Yeah, you know, it's all those things, yeah, right. And and um, this is part of that that I have to be the expert mentality that is poison in a collaborative. Um, um, team-based environment. I mean, what it, it's, it's so pernicious in academia, right? What, when you finish your PhD, the big meeting that you have at the end is not, that is not a, I don't believe that's called a collaborative exchange of scientific ideas, is it? It's called a defense. It is, yeah. There are things <laughs> being hurled word, at you, yeah. Even the word is a me against you kind of thing, right? Yep. And and it's it's almost like a it's almost like a um I don't know, like a fraternal kind of you know we did it so you did it not a hazing it's <laughs> yeah it's, it's like a, a softer okay. hazing yeah yeah and and so a rite of passage maybe I don't know yeah and 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 so you know a lot of the the big concern a lot of students have is well every time I read a job ad or I hear about other people they say you have to have prior industry experience. Right? Yeah, what do you do about that? Because you can't get that until you have it. It makes no sense. Well, all right. So first, let's unpack what that really means, right? Prior industry experience. Yeah, why do they, why do they care? If I've got lab experience, that seems fine. So first of all, first of all, you know that on the face of it, that's not true. It obviously isn't true. Because no those, people, hired, yeah. those people who are telling you that who work at Pfizer have PhD after their name, which means that they were in academia. So somebody rolled the dice on them, right? Somebody took a chance. Okay. So the idea that you have to have prior industry experience is a myth. Now, there is there there are some very interesting um, sort of factoids, though. So there was a there was a study that was reported in Forbes a number of years ago. I could get you the citation if you want, um, where they studied twenty thousand new hires. Okay, and this isn't just scientists. I I I, I'm, I don't remember specifically, but I think it's everything from like teachers to engineers to construction workers. It's a broad, but it's twenty thousand. Okay, they studied twenty thousand people, and the interesting thing about that was, if I remember the numbers right, because I actually have a slide on this that I use in my talks, forty six percent of those people lost their jobs within eighteen months. That's almost 50, almost fifty percent. But what's even more interesting? Excuse me. What's more interesting? Is that of the ones that lost their jobs, 89% were for attitudinal reasons, not because of a lack of technical skill. Right? Now, so 
for whatever reason, I mean, it just it, the, that those are data, right? That's just data. So, all right. So let's just unpack that for a second. So that means if you're, it's sort of like infant mortality in electronics, right? Burn the computer for three weeks. And if those components don't fail, they're probably not going to fail for 20 years. If they're going to fail, they're going to fail early, right? So basically what that study is telling us, if it's true, is that if you're going to screw up because you've got a, you got a problem in the way that you conduct yourself, you're going you're gonna <laughs> to hoist that flag within the first 18 months and lose your job. So when the company says, this is my opinion, when a company says we want three to five years of industry experience, what they're really saying is that go work for some other company and make it through that 18-month gauntlet and don't get fired, and then I'll know you're not one of those 50%. <laughs> then we know, we know you're not crazy. And right, and we're not going to have to worry about you yeah. being poisoned in our organization. Mm -hmm. So that still doesn't help you with, well, what do you do about it? No, do you think what? this is in recognition of the fact that there there is such a team focus in industry and such an individual focus in academia? Is that, you know, in, in your experience, is that what's leading to this attitudinal yes. uh, minefield? Yes, it's it's that... I don't know if I'd put it quite that way. What I'd say is that it is the recognition that teamwork and being a learner is just as important or more important as being a an expert, sort of the Daniel Goleman kind of stuff, right? The emotional intelligence stuff. Um, and so it's it's and and the prejudice that exists with regard to the academic PhD. Right. There's other studies that, you know, that show, you know, they've asked companies. There's a study of 100 companies in the UK. Um, this is in Vitae, had, had an article about this a few years ago, um, where they interviewed people in companies like biotech and pharma who who hire PhDs. They value PhDs. And they said, what's your preconceived notion of the academic PhD, the generic academic PhD? And they say, oh, drive and motivation. You know, they're all over it. They work so hard. You know, they work 18 hours a day, right? They crank it. Um, uh, data analysis, awesome. Problem solving, terrific. Interpersonal skills, yeah, I don't know. Commercial awareness, they don't even know what that means. Project management, I don't know. So anything that gets away from the technical skills and the drive, the prejudice is that coming out of academia, you don't get it. And so they're concerned and the knowledge of that 50% of people fail and 90% of those are because of this lack of awareness right of the of the of the collaborative nature of the real world they're basically saying you're going to have to prove to me that you have what it takes to work in this team based environment where if you walk in there and just act like the expert all the time you're going to decrease the performance of other people and that's mm. going to hurt the company so let's imagine we have and i actually this is probably true that we've got someone listening to this interview and they're a grad student or postdoc who is curious or interested in maybe transitioning to an industry career you right. know after they get their degree but they obviously don't have that experience yet what advice would you give them right now during their training uh, to help them to to be competitive for that transition Okay, so there's two parts to that answer. The first part is I will challenge your suggestion that they don't have the experience. True, they don't have the industry experience, but I would argue that many, if not most of them, actually do have the equivalent experience. And I say that for two reasons. The first reason is that if you look at 
the scientific process, right? The scientific method. Hypothesis, organize your team, which is admittedly a small team. It's you and your PI and maybe an admin that orders all the stuff for your lab and whatnot or a collaborator. Plan the work, execute, communicate, return, you know, then the financial accounting, making sure you did it on time and on budget and you met your objectives. And then you go back to your original hypothesis. Did I answer it? Do I have to modify it? And you go around and around and around, right? Compare that. Compare that. It's overly simplified, but that's what it is. The business life cycle is something like this. You have a strategic plan that the company says, we're going to go after cardiovascular disease because we have some intellectual property or whatever. That's what we're going to do. We assemble our team. Now, it's a bigger team. Now, as we, as we mentioned, this is not just the scientists. It's engineers. It's finance. It's, it's senior executives. It's project managers. It's all those different people, marketing, whatever. And you have a project manager then that plans everything out, milestones, deliverables, all that stuff. And that gets into the whole project management realm. But then you execute and you make sure that the work you're doing is always focused on the strategic plan. And then you communicate, whether it's press releases, uh, communications to investors or to Wall Street, right? Um, marketing pieces. And then there's definitely the bean counters doing the return on investment piece. And the second rule of business says you have to continuously improve. So you go back to your strategic plan. Did we do it? Yes, we did it. Now let's do it faster, better, cheaper, or else someone's going to beat us. So my point is that the business life cycle superimposes almost perfectly on the academic scientific method. So I would argue that, for example, Josh, when you're designing experiments, right? When I say, tell me about how you design your experiments. Well, I had to figure out, you know, the time course for this, and I had to figure out the replicates. And so I decided, and you get me into it, get into a technical discussion about all the planning you did for experiments. I said, oh, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is that you had to look at quality control, which is why you did replicates. You had a risk management strategy, right? And a plan B in case something didn't work. Right? So there's all you could reframe your academic experiences using the language of business, which would include things like production, focus, execution, um, control, tactical planning, strategic planning, enabling, delegating, right? All these things. In fact, there are 23 of these core skills that we talk about that, that map directly to both that business process and to the scientific method. I mean, this is, this is pretty uh, encouraging and astounding if what you're saying is true. What, what you're telling us is it's not that um, the training you're getting in graduate school and as a postdoc are not appropriate and, and commensurate with what you need in industry. What you're saying is it's a dialect problem. I was glazing over with all these <laughs> business terms that I'm not familiar with. Right. Is, are there good resources out there for, for students and postdocs to, to start to learn this language of business? Well, we're one of them, I it's guess. It's called SciPhD, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so, so actually, yeah, tell us yeah, let's get it, about let's, SciPhD and what it offers to trainees. I guess it's predicated on this notion that scientists are leaders, they just don't know it, right? You are taught, I mean, you think about it. What is a PhD really? You're a problem solver. That's what you are, right? I would put a PhD up against an MBA any day of the week to figure out why the car won't start or the refrigerator stopped working, right? Or or you can't lock a door anymore. It could be a mechanical thing. It could be an electrical thing. It could. We know how to change one variable at a time. You know, you, you're not always going to get the answer, but we are problem solvers. That's what we've been trained to do. And it's a discipline. It's a talent that is incredibly valuable, right? So 
the problem or, or the missed opportunity, it's not a problem. The missed opportunity is that many, many people who are saying they don't take full advantage of what a PhD has really given them, right? The deductive logic and the scientific method has given them. And PsyPhD really, in some ways, it's sort of like a, um, it's a 12-step program. In some ways, I guess it makes you feel better about you actually have a lot more to offer than all the molecular biology skills that you learned, right? There's a lot more to what you have than that, that you have mentored people. You know, you kind of forget about the fact that there were high school students that matriculated through the lab that you actually wound up inspiring to do something else. That you were the one that they constantly go to to explain to somebody else what's going on because you just have this knack for being able to do it. Or you are the QA, the quality assurance, quality control expert. You're the one that runs the gels reproducibly better than anybody else all the time because you have attention to detail. And there's this other person in the lab who's more the intuitive thinker who comes up with the brain ideas, but you got to pull it away from them because they'll never execute. Right? Those are all business problems. Those aren't science problems. Those are business problems. It's just, again, this gets back to that language thing. Okay, so what does PhD do? So first of all, we, we try and demystify the real differences between academia and industry. Okay, how does science work in industry versus academia? And the biggest difference there has nothing to do with the technology. The technology is the same. What's different is you do it in a team environment where you've got to get out of this expert mode, that you're always the expert, that everybody's always looking to you for the answer. This, this notion of shifting from expert to learner and not always answering questions, right? When somebody asks you a question, maybe ask them a question rather than come right in with the answer. Because even though they ask you a question, they may not have really phrased it the way they really wanted to. So asking a question of them to get more information before you then give the right answer, number one, it tells the other person, I value your input as opposed to shut up and listen to me, right? And you, you elevate their perceived value in the group. So that motivates them, right? That makes them want to work with you more. So, all right. So, so, we, so the first part of PhD is to first understand how things work in a well-run organization. Now, they're crappy organizations too that do the same things right it's all pit one postdoc against the other kind of thing i mean that exists but first understand the two rules of business you got to make a profit and continuous improvement which whole, everything else flows from that and the, and the idea of a team environment okay then show them how so much of what they have done actually does map to those core skills, those, those, that business life cycle, right? The scientific method, business life cycle being the same thing. So, so the first thing that happens then is they go like, wow, maybe there is some hope for me in the first place. Okay. Well, and, and then once they understand that, then mechanically, what the next thing we do is we say, we give them a, home, a homework assignment before any Psy PhD event. Every person who's going to come to one of our workshops or boot camps or certificate programs has to, we give them some resources, they have to go out and find a job, find a job ad, something they would really like to do. It doesn't have to be science, I don't care what it is. Go find a job ad, print it out, and we give them a form where they have to identify the top three to five skills necessary to be competitive for that job. And that's all we tell them. And so they come with that information 
and most of them have a list of three to five things like CRISPR <laughs> or mass spectrometry or whatever. They have techniques. Their, all techniques, all yeah. technical stuff. So then, you know, I tell them about that Forbes study. I tell them about these other things. We talk about the, the business and the social skills and the, and the six areas, you know, the, the, the business life cycle. There are six major areas, right? I don't know if you caught that, but it was right vision, developing people, um, uh, execution, achieving results, communications, and finance. So we then go back to that job ad, and I show them how to actually dissect the job ad. Well, first I show them, you know, here's my job. I, I found one, and I, I highlight, here's all the science. Oh, molecular biology, phage display, blah, 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 all these things. I said, but look at, look at what else is in this job ad. There's all these references to lead a group, work independently, manage multiple projects simultaneously, lead collaborations, good oral and written skills. Um, and these are all references to these same 23 skills in these six major areas. So then I show them how you can actually map a job ad quantitatively, list out what all those skills are, identify the ones that are, that are highlighted the most, and then learn how to develop a targeted resume that focuses on all of those, not just your science. This sounds, I mean, this sounds really um, amazing because it's so focused and so applied on the actual process. Understand what they're asking for and then tailor your application to fit it. I, I assume that the, uh, a job opening in an industry position gets hundreds, thousands of applications? Yes, right. It's typically like, it depends how big the company, 500 to 1,500 applicants. And that's the thing. Dan, that's exactly, you know, so Pfizer's looking for a molecular biologist, right? And like you said, you get hundreds to a thousand people applying for that job that all have a PhD in molecular biology. Yeah, now every, what? Right. Every one of them can run a gel, can do HPLC, right? Can do, they can all do the technical things that you learn to do to get a PhD, to earn a PhD in molecular biology, right? They all can do it. So what makes you think that you're going to differentiate yourself based mm -hmm. on any of that? Now, they will. That's going to be the first cut. I'm not saying that your technical skills aren't important. In fact, they're critically important. But Pfizer's in the driver's seat, right? They can say, we're going to take – and they let HR screen the, uh, screen the resumes for those technical skills. You know, here's the list of things we need for this job. You've got to be able to run a mass spec platform. You've got to be able to do tissue culture. And they'll have a bunch of people in HR that read the resumes and do the little checkbox and make sure that those things are covered. And if the person looks good otherwise, but there's something missing, they get them on the phone. They say, we're trying to clarify. And so they can vet the science. But you're not going to get hired. All that means is that that's a ticket to play. And what's going what's to get you hired is your business identity and your social identity. And the whole rest of the day, if, if it's our half-day workshop, we is spent on what that means. What is your business identity? What is your social identity? If it's a half-day workshop, I can't transform them. But I can teach them the importance of networking, the importance of being a listener, the importance of being um, being able to communicate your experiences in non-scientific terms. So rather than when I say collaborate, you know, if you're in an interview in a job and they say, you know, one of the things that has been um, the driving force for this company is our innovation. We are the most innovative company and we're looking for everybody who is that innovative peak to them. Tell me about a time when you had a problem and you used your innovation to solve that problem. 
well, you know, most scientists, they start getting into all the gory details of the science and how their science was, you know, and, you know, I'm glazing over. It's a missed opportunity to talk about, well, innovation isn't just about me. Innovation was about me talking with some of my colleagues and listening to them and coming up with a novel idea based on some input from them and also crediting them. And, th and that stuff actually happened to me. I remember at the NIH going out to dinner, pounding beers with my friends at seven o'clock at night after a long day in the lab. And Andrew Sant would say something, Randy, do you ever think about doing this? I'm like, what a great idea. And you go back that night and you set up the experiment. Did I credit her for it? Probably not. That's all my idea now, right? But those are the kinds of things that you can do. They're missed opportunities. If only you knew to take advantage of that. And can you imagine if you said that in an interview? All of a sudden, you've separated yourself from everybody else. You know, what struck me as you were telling, telling that story and, and highlighting some of these characteristics that would set you apart in an industry interview is I'm thinking even, even if you're not interested in, in being an industry scientist, some of these, these characteristics and skills would make you a better academic scientist or would make you a better uh, individual in whatever industry you're in or whatever direction you decide to go with your PhD. Yeah, there are things that I think academia can adapt and learn from industry and, and probably the same in the other direction. But let's talk about that a second. But yeah, to ask, to ask the question more specifically, You've been in academia, uh, so you know what it's like there, obviously. What advice would you give to academia and academic labs to help them improve and, and be more successful? Reward collaboration, right? Reward teamwork. You know, encouraging your postdocs to collaborate with each other in and out of lab meeting and help each other with things, putting them on collaborative projects. The old-fashioned pit one postdoc against another on the same project because that's going to motivate him to work harder. One wins, one loses. That's not my problem. That's their problem. That has got to go away. I, I also have to think what's going to happen is that because information is 24-7 and instantaneous, PIs who continue to run their labs in a dictatorial, top-down approach that does not inspire, that does not reward the kinds of things that are going to make you competitive for the real world. I'd like to think that what's going to happen ultimately is they're going to effectively get blackballed. That people aren't going to want to work in those labs, and they're going to know that those are dead ends unless you want to be an academic scientist, maybe. And now they're not going to get the the cream of the crop anymore and there are but and at the same time there are ways that you can even in a perhaps less uh conducive lab like that there's still things you can do like for example like so so another big part of what we talk about is networking how do you network how do you establish relationships you know and and one of the things i tell people is that you know the vendors that come into the lab where everybody scurries over to their desk to act like they're busy because they don't want to talk to the sales guy all the time right you should Develop relationships with those people. Number one, when they leave your lab, they're going to Pfizer. They're going to Merck. They're going to Lilly, right? And they know people in those places. They could be advocates for you if you built a relationship with them, number one. Yeah, I used, to, I used to run because they would come in with literature and, yeah. and not do the, the pressure sale, but, you know, they'd want to talk to you about what you were working on. And, you know, you'd, you'd make your way to the tissue culture hood and get your earphones right. on as fast as you possibly could. Yeah. So, so here's the thing, right? Opportunity what, lost. Exactly. Because, so for example, what if you went to your PI, and let's say it is one of those PIs who isn't so receptive, right? But what if you said to the PI, hey, I'm willing 
to take over the dealing with the vendors and negotiating bulk consumables. I, I'd like to learn that, and it's going to help the lab. Are you okay with me taking that over, right? And even a self-serving PI might want to do that because he doesn't want to deal with it, right? So now you have an opportunity to, number one, build your net. So there's a self-serving reason why we're doing this, right? Because you're getting to know people. If you're willing to put up with that overbearing, idiotic, you know, socially inept sales guy or woman, um, but you establish that relationship. You're the one that negotiates. And so now, in addition to having, you know, a, through that one person, 200 or 500 or 1,000 other people that are second-level contacts in LinkedIn that you can connect with in companies where you may want to work or academia where you may want to work, you also have a line on your resume that says, responsible for negotiating laboratory consumables resulting in a 15% reduction in <laughs> laboratory overhead costs. One line. Love that, yeah. Tell me that's not cool. Yeah, that's really cool. It's all, right, all about that, reframing. It, and this gets back to Josh, what you were, you know, what I was in the beginning. There's so many things that you could do. You don't need in your resume to talk about the name of every gene that you identified and what its position is on chromosome 14 and all that kind of crap. You could just talk about that, ma you know, managed. Uh, multiple projects, including identification of gene important for this, resulting in two peer-reviewed publications. Give an accomplishment. I don't give a damn how many things you've done if you've got no accomplishment for it. Right? If you tell someone you've mentored 35 people, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive. And then I say, well, what happened to those 35 people? And you tell me they all left science. Okay, that's not so cool anymore. <laughs> Or but I don't know. Seven people, five of whom are in PhD programs now, and the other two got jobs as, in biotechs as as uh, technicians. Like, wow, you did a good job. So it's all about accomplishments, and and um, yeah. So that's so that's what we do, and and you know we go from half day programs where there's only we teach. They come out of a half day program, understanding that whole new identity, and and helping define their own scientific business and social identity as a brand how to build a network. We actually have them network on the fly. We force them to do it. They have to introduce themselves to other people and, and they realize it's really not that hard. You know, learn where you can go to put yourself in the same room with people who can help you down the line. Um, and then in our bigger programs, we actually get into, you know, full modules on advanced communication, style flexibility, the MBTI stuff, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, technical literacy, project management, mentoring and delegation, um, finance, really cool finance exercise where they have $600 million and they set up as companies. So one table is a venture capital company, another table is a holding company, another table is a medical device company, another comp table is a bank, right? And they all have scenarios and they get cash. They get million dollar bills that they have to then do mergers and acquisitions. They have to evaluate a company, figure out what it's worth to make an offer to buy them. Uh, a bank has to lend money, but they have to figure out what the company's worth so they can figure out whether it's a, a, a good risk or a bad, you know. So we make them do stuff. It's not a lecture thing. Everything is all doing stuff. Um, continuous improvement, they learn, you know, benchmarking, brainstorming, priority matrix, SWOT analysis, how do companies improve? That second rule of business. And they do it. They form a company. They come up with an idea as a table for their new company based on somebody's real technology. And then they have to brainstorm how they're going to get to the market, how they're going to turn a profit. And then what do they do when they get a 30% reduction in revenues? 
and then they do a SWOT analysis to figure out how to solve that problem. That's so. It sounds so exciting, and 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 I think um, for people who are listening um, from their lab. And if you are interested in this, I think hopefully you've gotten some encouragement that there is a path forward for you in either in academia and maybe as a better PI than you would have been, but also in industry. Um, how do they find you, Randy? How do they how do they get into one of these boot camps or workshops or training sessions? Right. So right now, most of our business is B two B, meaning that our business works directly with another institution. So, you know, we have, you know, we run their certificate program at a lot of the best institutions like NYU and Rutgers uh, and the California system, UC Irvine, uh, um, UCSF and Davis as a consortium with Berkeley, uh, Denver. So there's a lot, um, there's a lot of places where we have these four-day certificate programs. Um, We're very, we have a couple of places where we have regional programs. So in New York, we have that certificate program every year at the New York Academy of Sciences that's open to anybody who wants to, and they just go to the New York Academy of Sciences website and they you know, can register for it there and, and pay for it or get their PI to pay for it or whatever. Most of our relationships are with institutions though, and that's true for the certificate programs, the half-day workshops, the full-day programs, and the two-day boot camps. So if, um, if people want to find out about these things, they can go to your website, SciPhD.com? Yeah, www.sciphd.com, S-C-I-P-H-D.com. And it describes pretty much all that stuff. And the other thing, we do have an online virtual career center. Um, and that is continually advancing. Right now, the virtual career center is made up of, um, it's organized by four major questions that a lot of graduate students and postdocs are asking. Like, what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, what kind of job do I want to do? How do I prepare for a job? Um, how do I figure out how much money I need to make? And uh, I've forgotten what the fourth one is. But there, there are there are about twenty videos. They're about anywhere from ten to twenty minutes long that deal with very specific topics. Yeah, you've got a few a few available for free online. I encourage people to check those out because they are um, they're an extension of what we talked about today. But they're it's a really uh, cool format for understanding some of these things. Wow, what a cool interview. Yeah, I left so encouraged after, after talking with Randy. Um, and hopefully everybody who's listening does too. We, we have so many skills that you know, we can maybe describe. But one of the most common things we hear, Josh, when somebody says, I want to work outside of the academic lab, but I don't know what I could do. I don't know what I'm qualified for. Maybe there are no jobs for me out there. And I think what Randy is saying is absolutely there are jobs. You're using the wrong terms to describe what it is you know how to do. Yeah, and, and jobs that I'm qualified for. I mean, this is this is one of my crusades, Dan, is is looking around. And this was true for me, and I believe it was true for you. And so many people right at the point of completing the PhD is how often is your confidence level at an all-time low? The lowest. Oh, and... And you know, and that's the time when you need to be putting the most effort into your transition to really the launch pad for your career for the rest of your life. And how hard is it to do that when you're feeling so <laughs> beaten down and uh, and such a low confidence state? Well, and I love what Randy said there. You know, in terms of your your final uh, 
foray in the academic lab is a defense. Like you are being attacked. And so, of course, at the end of it, you're feeling terrible. You, you've just spent all this time having people kind of dump on your writing, on your experiments, on your, uh, on your work for the last five or however many years. And, and they're not dumping on it, but, but this kind of individualistic approach and this uh, notion that we've got to always be the person in the room who is able to uh, pick apart and show how you're wrong it's, it can be demoralizing, really can. Yeah, and really that defense is the culmination of your five or six years of swimming in that environment, right? So you, that's been your day in and day out. And, and that was one of the things that really hit home for me is how Randy contrasted the, the environment of industry versus academia, this almost how you have to retrain the way academics think. Coming in from that environment you just described where, oh, I have to make sure... I look good in this situation. And oftentimes, maybe every time, that's at the expense of uh, people you're working with because the reality of science, the reality, whether it's academic or industry or government or whatever, is team, team sport by nature. And so, you know, I couldn't help but have this thought, how much could academic research improve if it would adopt some of these these strategies employed by industry where, you know, we really think about working as a, as a team and work about and, and really humble ourselves a little bit, acknowledge the people who help us um, and not, not just have this sort of capitalistic lookout for number one. It's almost like academia is America and, uh, and industry is, is Europe, which is kind of weird. Yeah. That's a weird analogy, <laughs> but I can follow you in, in so far as um, you know, it's, it is every man and woman for him or herself in academia. Um, yeah, I think it'd be interesting. It'd be really tough. You know, you, we talked at the the beginning of the show about changing GRE requirements. That seems hard to me. Now, imagine changing the entire culture and the nature of uh, scientific training. That's it's going to take time. But but we've got it. What we've got to do is the same thing that we're seeing with that GRE work. One university has to take the step try it out, show us all what's possible, and then maybe slowly over time, others will adopt it. Well, you know, industry, like Randy mentioned, they have two main things they want to do, right? They want to make profit and then do things better uh, as they move forward. And so if this individualistic way of doing research was the best way, industry would be doing it that they would, way. They would have chosen that, sure. And that's why they're not, because it's it's counterproductive. Um, and, you know, really, this pairs so nicely with um, the Google team research that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Um, so I think, I don't know, I hope academia is paying attention to yeah. some of these things happening in industry, uh, because I really think it could be beneficial to PIs individually who maybe try to institute some of these these practices in their own lab. Absolutely. Now, after we had the interview, Josh, I've been, I told you, I've been so encouraged this week just thinking about our co- talk with Randy. And you know, as a PhD working outside of my training field, um, you know, I work in electrical energy efficiency uh, type work in a software company. I don't mention my PhD ever if I can help it. Because if I say, oh, yeah, I have a PhD, they say, oh, in what? And then I have to say, physiology. You know, I, I can never say it's in electrical engineering or it's in something related to my field. Uh, I would have a very hard time like tying my physiology oh you know the giant squid axon patch clamp experiments show us that electricity like what am i going to do so um you know my phd i I think it's kind of like my phd is like fight club i just 
don't talk about it. Um, but but I'm rethinking that. I think. I almost feel like Dan, you're still you're still suffering from this. Uh, <laughs> I have imposter <laughs> syndrome about yeah. <laughs> I think you are because I I would imagine, and you should try this and report back to us. Uh, being more open about your PhD, I imagine most people would be really interested in in not only that you you have a PhD, but but the differences in the types of things you studied in graduate school and what you learned there and how it applies and helps you now. Yeah, but here's the thing, and this is where Randy has opened my eyes. There are words I can use to describe my PhD training that apply now, or I could use the words I used back in in my lab and it will go over people's head and they won't see it. And so um, I think... You know, maybe I need to spend some time on his website or, or if he's got a, a training kind of going on in my area, I need to check that out. But I think there's a way that I can translate it. And I just, I don't have that. I don't have the words. I don't have the terminology or the lingo to be able to do it. But uh, I'm thinking more about it. And I think that's positive. Yeah, I think learning that learning that language and doing what Randy said, being able to um, translate between the the scientific method and the skills that you gained in an academic setting to a lot of this common terminology of, of things that happen in industry is a really important skill to learn. So I would encourage everyone who's interested in this, especially if you're interested in industry careers, uh, to go to SciPhD.com, check out some of the things they have there. If there's a training in the area, um, certainly do what you can to attend um, or reach out to Randy. I'm sure he could point you in, in a good direction um, if you're looking for learning more. All right, Dan, thanks so much for setting that up. That was really fantastic. All right, and are you ready for this week's etymology puzzle? We're a little bit late, but we've got an answer. All right, what do you got? Okay, the clue last time was, let's have a meeting where we present posters, give research talks, and drink together. Mm, I like all of those things. Paradise? Paradise, yeah. (laughs) There it is. You solved it. (laughs) Not quite. What is it? Okay, the answer is symposium. Uh, I actually got invited to a symposium this fall, so I was like, what does that word mean, sim? That's together. It's kind of a weird word. It's a weird word. Uh, So sim is together. And posium comes from a word meaning to drink. So uh, this is actually a... Uh, in, in Greece, there were these parties or gatherings where educated people would get together. They would talk about some subject. And of course, they would drink. So we get this word symposium from the phrase drinking together. You know, some of the best poster sessions I've been a part of are the ones that have beer and wine as part of them. I think this podcast is a symposium, <laughs> effectively. Can right? you imagine this podcast if there was no beer? Uh, I'm doing it right now. We've got coffee. Oh, that's so. true. So maybe this one's terrible. So we're making it work. So, Josh, our winner this week is Dan from the Rockefeller. Congratulations! Not me, not oh, me, oh. from the Rockefeller University. So, congratulations to Dan. You got the correct answer, symposium. Good job, Dan. And are you ready for the next puzzle? I'm ready. The clue is, an amber or glass rod can be used to demonstrate this force of nature. Read it one more time. An amber or glass rod can be used to demonstrate this force of nature. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com. We'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan, fantastic. 
Uh, this episode's gone on a little longer than usual, uh, but thanks to everyone for hanging with us. Plenty of coffee. We got energy. Let's go. <laughs> That's right. If you have a topic or question idea, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, and click on the Become a Patron button. Or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would love the beer or coffee money. And Dan, we will be back at you next time. See you then, Josh.